We are getting near the end. We have just, just two sermons left. Hopefully, you are beginning to get a sense of just what the kingdom of God is and how important it is to Jesus' mission and therefore how, how important it ought to be to you and I. Well, if you're visiting or if you have been out of town the last few weeks, we spent, we spent the first few weeks of this series looking at the nature of the kingdom. And then these last few weeks, we have looked at, at life in the kingdom. Uh, what does it mean to live our own lives in light of the kingdom that has come in Christ? So during that time, uh, this isn't something I anticipated, but two themes have really kind of emerged in my own mind. Uh, first, that the kingdom has a kind, of, a kind of hiddenness about it, that it's here and it's growing, but it comes in these unexpected ways, and even ways that we can't even see. And then the second thing is that in several different ways, uh, life for kingdom citizens is uh, it's almost always uh, something that looks backwards to us, uh, or something upside down, as Todd said last week, that the last will be first in the kingdom. So not only is the kingdom... It's not in line with the principles of the world, but it is actively at work overturning uh, those principles. And both of these themes, uh, the hiddenness and the idea that the last will be first, uh, they require that we live by faith and not by sight. That's, that's the way of the kingdom. So we'll see that again uh, this morning, but it will be a little bit different. Uh, we're going to look at a, at a familiar passage that's often uh, misunderstood. It tells us about the relationship of the church uh, and the kingdom. So if you will, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. It's also printed for you there uh, in your bulletin. You can follow along with me. Uh, I'll begin in verse 13 and read through verse 20. Uh, Let's give our attention uh, to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, what we need more than anything else right now is to hear from you. Uh, We need our eyes opened, our ears uh, unstuffed. And for you to soften our hearts by your spirit. So we pray that you would do that now. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. At Redeemer, uh, we talk a lot about our 
philosophy of ministry. On its most condensed form, it's just this little two-page document that is really central uh, to how we operate, to how we decide what we're going to do and what we're not going to do uh, with the time and the resources that we have, and especially how we, how we interact both with one another uh, but also with the community of Athens at large. And it's just all there on these, on these two little pages. Um, in that philosophy, we have three core values. So I, w- I won't go into all of those uh, this morning. Uh, but one of them, uh, one that's been, I, I would just say, personally uh, important to me, but has a lot to do with our passage this morning, is that we are kingdom-focused and not redeemer-focused. In other words, uh, what drives and colors all of our understanding to what it means to be faithful to God's mission is not limited to these walls. It's not limited to the programs and the events that happen here. We want to see the kingdom come to Athens, period. It's what frees us to be able to send out a core group of people and all of their time and resources and giving to go and plant another church. And then to be able to do it again, uh, just a few years later, it's because our concept of the kingdom is not contained at 165 Pulaski Street. Now, unfortunately, uh, some have taken this to mean something like uh, we can focus on the kingdom to the exclusion of the church, or at least to the indifference of the church. That what really matters is what God is doing in people's hearts. Or as long as some kind of social justice issues or human flourishing are being addressed, then we can disregard uh, what the church is either doing or has to say about it. I actually think this is basically, this is the common view uh, for the average American now. Uh, And more and more, even among people in the church, I discovered this week that you you can buy a refrigerator magnet on Amazon with a Neil Young quote that says, I'm not into organized religion. Um, I'm not sure that refrigerator trinkets are what Neil Young had in mind uh, 40 years ago. Uh, But it's the common view now. Uh, And of course, the the opposite extreme would be something that would equate the kingdom with the church. That to be a member of the church is to have entered the kingdom. That the church is the exclusive realm of salvation, and there is no other way of salvation. And in this kind of view, all the operations of the church are automatic, so that life in the church means that you are default, by default saved from your sins. And everything sort of becomes mechanical and tends toward just external ceremonies and observances, so that as long as you have your papers... Uh, you're good. In this kind of view, the, the spirit ends up being held captive uh, by the church. So we don't want to fall uh, into either ditch. Uh, we want to be kingdom-focused, not redeemer-focused. In other words, not our church-focused. In particular, not, not just the events and activities here. But we, we do want to give the church its proper weight. Uh, that, in particular, we want to give the church its biblical uh, wait. We want to avoid this sloppy view on the one hand that sees the church as simply irrelevant to what God is doing in his kingdom. And we want to avoid this overly optimistic and rigid view that sees the church as equal 
to the kingdom. So this morning, I want us to discuss the relationship of the church uh, and the kingdom. How is it that they fit together or work together? And in order to do that, we have to look at a somewhat confusing passage. There are some competing views about this text, even significant divisions in the church over what exactly this text means. It's been misinterpreted a lot, which is a a preacher's way of saying, I'm about to tell you my interpretation, which is the right interpretation. Um, But to talk about church and the kingdom, we need to look at this text. And it does mean, it means that this sermon will be a little bit technical, at least in the beginning. I'm going to ask you to Hang in there with me, okay? The first point is the longest point. It's the most teachy. Uh, And I'm just self-aware enough to know that if I think it's teachy, you all might think it's really teachy. Um, It's probably a good time just to point out that I'm finite. uh, And the sermon, we, we can't say everything that could be said. So if you are left with hanging questions, we would love for you. We would love for you to come and talk to us. I would love for you to come and talk to me. That's why Hal came back, actually, is to answer all your questions. Um, I, do, I do want you to leave here today with a high view of the church. A view of the church that would situate it within the kingdom of God that we've been talking about the last several weeks. So what is the relationship of the church and the kingdom? I want us to look at just three features of that relationship this morning. So first, the church exercises authority on behalf of the king. Second, the church belongs to the king. And third, the church shares in the victory of the king. Okay? Authority, belonging, and victory. So first, the church exercises authority on behalf of the king. There are some questions about the nature of that authority. But it's clear here in this passage that there is some kind of authority given by Jesus. He calls Peter the rock, promises to give the keys of the kingdom. So how are we, how are we supposed to understand this? Well, notice Jesus begins by asking his disciples a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They point immediately to several others. Uh, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah perhaps some other prophet. These are, these are all incorrect, of course, but it does show that there's an elevated view of Jesus. There's a kind of respect given to him. They know, people know that Jesus is important, but they don't have it quite right. They haven't quite grasped who he is. So he asks them again in verse 15, but, but who do you say that I am? The, the you is a plural here. Who do y'all say? He wants to know, What do my disciples say about who I am? And Peter steps forward and answers for the group. He he gives this wonderful answer. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, up to this point in the New Testament, only angels, demons, and narrators have called Jesus the Christ. Some have, have come close, calling him the son of David, But it's pretty obvious that that they even misunderstood what they were saying when they used that term. And no one has gone so far as to call him the Messiah. Christ is Greek here for Messiah. What Peter is acknowledging is that Jesus is the 
climactic figure in all of redemptive history, and he's standing there talking to him. So Peter's confession is not only commended, but he calls him blessed because only the Father, only the Father could have revealed this to him. He said earlier in Matthew 11, only the Father knows the Son. But it's here that Jesus, uh, he takes it a step further. He might be taking it a little further than you would like him to take it or than you're comfortable with him taking it. Um, He calls Peter uh, the rock on which he will build his church. And we'll just get it out of the way. It won't help us at all to try to come up with some way that Peter isn't really the rock here. Uh, Jesus, Jesus names him Petros. It's the masculine form of Petra, the Greek word for rock. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Uh, The connection that Jesus is making here is impossible to miss. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has taken this to mean that Peter uh, is the first pope in a long succession of popes that lead the church around the world uh, from Rome. It goes without saying that that is not what we believe here, but how are we to do justice uh, to Jesus' words, to the fact that he does call Peter the rock? Well, if if you spend much time in the New Testament, you find pretty quickly that Peter is an extremely prominent figure, especially in the four Gospels in the first half of Acts. Every time the disciples are listed, Peter's name comes first. When the three of Jesus' inner circle are listed, it's always Peter, James, and John. And it's also pretty obvious that Peter is a leader. Uh, it It is perfectly in line with Peter's personality to think that he can answer for the group. In Acts 1, Jesus tells the apostles that the gospel is going to spread through Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And at every stage, uh, first in Jerusalem in Acts 2, then in Samaria in Acts 8, and finally with Cornelius and his Gentile family in Acts 10, Peter is there preaching Christ when the Holy Spirit is poured out. But interestingly, after that, Peter is still a character. He's, he's still present uh, in the life of of the story we read in Acts, but he sort of fades from prominence after Acts 10. And the reason is because the rock uh, was not a title. It was not not a job that Peter was given, but a description of his historical role in the life of the church. That once the foundation was laid, uh, his role as the rock was finished. So in other words, Peter, Peter is an historical rock, not a perpetual rock. So if you've made it with me this far, okay. But what about the keys? What's the deal? What's going on with this binding and loosing with heaven and earth? Well, I want to show you that the exercise of the keys of the kingdom is the proclamation of the gospel and more broadly the administration of the word. I know, I know that you don't buy it yet, Um, but stick with me. If we look at uh, Matthew 18, it's the only other passage in the four Gospels that use this word, church. We also see the same language there of binding and loosing on heaven and earth. 
In that passage in Matthew 18, the power of the keys is in reference to all of the disciples. Uh, It's as a group that they're given this authority. You, You might also know that Matthew 18 is in the context of church discipline. It's a particular application of the word. It's one of the ways to exercise the keys. So by comparing Matthew 16, our passage this morning, with this other passage in Matthew 18, we can see that while the keys are given in response to Peter's confession, they are given representatively. So remember, Peter answers for the group here, and he's given the keys as a representative of the group. We see later in Ephesians 2 that the apostles and prophets are called the foundation of the church because of their unique role, both in proclaiming the word, but also in even writing some of the New Testament. And then later in 1 Timothy 6, Paul tells Timothy, who's not an apostle, but an elder in the church, that he is to guard the deposit entrusted to him. The unique role of the apostles has passed from church history, but the role of proclaiming the word has to continue in the church, and it's passed down through the elders. So this this is why the Heidelberg Catechism can say, what are the keys of the kingdom? They are the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. It is the administration of the word that binds and looses. And as we saw in Matthew 13 a few weeks ago, it is the acceptance or rejection of this word that determines our standing in the kingdom. So there's real authority to proclaim the word given to the church called the keys here, but it's not an absolute authority. All authority is derivative of God's authority, and the authority granted here to the apostles is directly tied to their faithfulness to the word. If you've got your Bibles just in the very next paragraph in Matthew 16, Peter tells Jesus that he can't go to the cross. And Jesus responds by saying, get behind me, Satan. It's very obvious that Peter has not been granted some kind of infallible authority here. Although the authority that he, or excuse me, he did have authority, but it only went as far as his faithfulness to what God had revealed. So, in Presbyterian speak, this means that church authority is real, but we say it's ministerial and declarative. In other words, the church makes pronouncements, and those pronouncements are to be explanations and applications of the Word of God, and nothing more and nothing less. So the church is the steward of God's mysteries, but not the author. To paraphrase George Bush, the church is not the decider. Um, The church doesn't decide who gets into the kingdom, but it is the God-given means through the proclamation of the word that people enter and leave the kingdom on the basis of their acceptance or denial of the gospel. But doesn't the church mess up? I mean, isn't, isn't church history filled with the church's mistakes, with the blunders, 
and the sins of the church's leaders, uh, to ask the question uh, is to answer it. Uh, Some of you here have your own horror stories about what the church has said or what the church has done. And yet, and yet, Jesus has promised to work in the church. The church is what Jesus has promised to build. So we have to remember that the Holy Spirit is not in competition with the church. Far from it. We, we know from John 3 that the Spirit blows where He will, and we certainly cannot contain Him or seek to manage the operations of the Spirit. But the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6. We should avail ourselves of every opportunity to be blessed by the administration of the Word, especially in the institution which has been charged to guard the good deposit. So let's not, let's not let the possibility of mistakes negate the authority that Jesus has invested in the church. I mean, think about it. What, what makes you think that you can overcome your own sin and the possibility of your own mistakes as you seek out a kind of spirituality apart from the church. What you need, what we all need, is to hear the word faithfully proclaimed again and again, week in and week out, inviting us to respond to the gospel of the kingdom. So the church exercises... Authority on behalf of the king. It's a real authority derived from Jesus, always governed and limited by his word. The second feature here that I want us to see, the second feature of this relationship between the church and the kingdom is that the church belongs to the king, to her king. He calls it my church. Now, in order to belong to Jesus... Uh, Peter's confession here must also uh, be your confession. Remember, the reason that we know that the kingdom has come is that the Messiah, the King, is here. Uh, His promise in Matthew 18 that wherever two or three are gathered, he will be with them is repeated. In Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, when he tells his disciples that he will be with them to the end of the age, and in both cases... The Messiah continues to reign as king with his people by the Holy Spirit. He is still with the church. So that while the kingdom and the church are not the same, the kingdom is the rule of God through Christ. The church is the people of Christ. The church is where Christ's rule ought to be most visibly expressed. So John Calvin could say in his commentary on the Psalms, the whole world is a theater for the display of the goodness, wisdom, justice, and power of God. But the church is the orchestra, the most conspicuous part of it. So what this, what this means for us is that Jesus' people don't make mere professions of faith only to get on with their lives. Jesus builds with a certain kind of material here. People who call Jesus the Christ. In other words, 
Jesus' bricks call him the king and they treat him like the king. And in this way, the church becomes an outpost of the kingdom in the world, putting Christ's reign on display for all to see so that Paul can say in Ephesians 3 that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities. And Jesus doesn't just say here that this organization belongs to me. He he says, my church. Um, I mentioned already, this is the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament, with the only other time being in Matthew 18 in the Gospels. This word means assembly or congregation. This is, excuse me, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, the version of Scripture that would have been most familiar to many Christians in the first century, uh, uses this same word uh, for God's people. These were the people that were elected by and belonged to Yahweh. So we use church in a lot of different ways. Uh, But here the church does not refer to the building like meet me at the church. It doesn't refer to uh, the worship service like we're going to church on Sunday. And it doesn't even refer... Uh, to the institution as such. It doesn't even refer to the organization. Uh, The church is the people of God. It's His assembly. And when the disciples heard that Jesus was the Christ and that He had a church, they would have immediately understood that what was once Yahweh's people would now be Messiah's people. They They would have heard When he said, my church, my assembly of covenant people that belong to me. God has always had his people. And now in the new covenant, the Savior King has his people. And they're so important to him that he calls them mine. In Acts 20, we're told that the church was purchased by the blood of God. Jesus loves the church with a self-sacrificial love, what the Old Testament called His treasured possession. The New Testament calls Jesus' bride. The church belongs to Him, and He loves what is His. My dad died about six years ago, or six years ago this fall. And the truck that I drive uh, used, used to be his truck. And every now and then, my mom will still say something like, how's, how's dad's truck doing? Uh, to her, it's, it's still his truck, and it's important to her that I take care of it. Not because she really cares about cars. Uh, it's, it's important because the truck belonged to her husband. You might have something like that uh, in your own life, um, but we value things that belong uh, to important people in our lives. And we, we must learn to value what still belongs to Jesus, the church that he purchased with his blood. We need, we need to remember this when we think about criticizing the church or any church. We need to remember it when we complain about people, people that Christ purchased that he calls his own. 
We need to remember Christ's love for the church when we neglect its work. When we seek to know God apart from His ordained means or seek to know the head apart from His body. When we prioritize our own interests over the interests of Jesus' assembly. The church is not a mere man-made institution, but it is the bride of Christ Himself, and we are to love what Jesus loves. Uh, Groucho Marx, uh, one of my dad's favorite theologians, um, Groucho said that marriage is a wonderful institution. But who wants to live in an institution? Do you ever think of the church this way? That Jesus, Jesus is wonderful. He is so important to me. But who'd want to get wrapped up in the church and all of that baggage? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if I commit myself to the life of the church as long as I know Jesus. It doesn't really matter if I join a church, as long as I know Jesus. It doesn't really matter if I show up to Sunday worship every week, as long as I know Jesus. The church and its life just don't really matter to many of us. Now, of course, of course, we ought to have our relationship with Jesus front and center, but we cannot assume that commitment to the bride of Christ is somehow divorced or superfluous from Christ himself. That would ignore the organic relationship of the body and the head. Our relationship to Christ, at least in some degree, is expressed in our love and commitment to His people, what He calls the church. A refusal to commit yourself to Christ's body reveals something about your commitment to Christ Himself. Saying that you have a relationship with Jesus But continuing to neglect the church is like saying that you're in love, but you just don't want to get married. Church, the church, is where Christ has promised to be present. It is where He has chosen to work and is made up of the people that He has chosen to lead. He loves the church, and He wants us to love it too. So lastly, now this third feature of the church in the kingdom is that the church shares in the victory of the king, of her king. What he wins, Jesus wins for her. Again, verse 18 tells us, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I mean, is, is there a more triumphant promise in all of scripture? Uh, your own Bible may have a footnote here that tells you hell is really Hades. Uh, so this is, this is different than Gehenna that Todd talked about last week, if you remember that. But Hades is the place or the realm of the dead. It's the same as that word Sheol that you find in the Old Testament. So this could read something like the gates of the place of the dead, 
or the gates of death itself will not prevail against the church. Now, in Scripture, uh, death is very significant. Death is always uh, the wages of sin, and it's always linked with the fall. Death is not just some inevitable force of nature, but is the curse wielding its power over the world and our constant reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be. It is the great equalizer. Everybody dies, and there is no escape. Whether you're religious or not, you will have to deal with death. But what we find throughout the New Testament... What Peter expresses so clearly here is that the Messiah is the Son of the living God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Christ will reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Thomas Goodwin, a 17th century English Puritan, said, whatever God meant to do for us and in us, Whatever privilege he meant to bestow on us, he did that thing in Christ. And that means because of his resurrection, his people are people of the resurrection. And because of his presence with us by the Spirit, we can said to be currently raised with him already and are promised that death itself will have no hold over us. We have the guarantee of the Son of God Himself that when the dust of history settles, we will reign with Him. It is the church that can say, O death, where is thy sting? I know many of you struggle with feelings of hopelessness. It might be due to a job that you don't enjoy, that you just can't find any way out of, or a relationship that has gone sour and you just can't figure out how to fix it. Or for some of you, it's just a crippling anxiety or depression and you don't know why you feel the way that you do. What Jesus is promising here is that he will put an end to all that is wrong with the world. Your pain... And your sin, what he says to the church is that all of your enemies are his enemies, right down to the last enemy, including death itself. And I know that it doesn't always look that way. And I know that the church doesn't look like much. But by the resurrection of Christ, the church's king, we have the objective guarantee that we will win out with him in the end. So in the meantime, he has promised to work for and through the church, to build the church, to be with us by his spirit. And he's added that not even death itself can defeat the church. So you have great hope if Jesus is your king. You can put all your trust in him, the one who has guaranteed victory over death will never let you down. Giving yourself to him 
and to his body is eternally worthwhile. So the church is not the kingdom, but it is an instrument of the king. It's where his gifts and power are given and received. It's where the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed and applied. The church is loved by Christ. He calls it his body and his bride. And we can love an imperfect church because we know that Jesus does. And the church shares in the already of Jesus' victory over all his and our enemies while we wait for the not yet of that victory. When the king returns and our faith becomes sight. So let us... Praise Jesus and thank him for the church and seek to love it just as he loves it and to place all our hope in the one who has promised to bring us safely home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son is our Messiah that He remains the Son of the living God, that He is alive today, that He has already struck the death blow to death itself, and that in Him we can have great hope that as we continue to walk by faith in this world, that there is a day to come when He will return for us and we will see Him and we will be victorious with Him. God, I pray that You would help all of us to place all of our hope in him and his promises alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.